0: you to take your Bibles and begin by turning to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 in your Bibles. Christ is coming over the world victorious. That victory established on the day of his resurrection written in history before the foundation of the world as our Savior is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world but established on the day that he arose from the dead. Thou art my beloved Son, this day have I begotten thee, Peter quoted from the Psalms, speaking of the day when our Savior rose from the dead. This week is Resurrection Sunday. Now, as we talked about last week, there is no call in the Word of God explicitly to regard the keeping of a holiday or of one day above another, and yet it is right. It is good that we as God's people take time to celebrate, and if we are going to celebrate anything as it relates to our Savior and our Lord, uh, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that bubbles up to the top. It is the day that the tomb was found empty that bubbles up to the very highest of our rejoicings, the very greatest of our celebrations, for indeed it is on that day that death was conquered, sin conquered, the grave conquered, when our Savior, being seen alive after being in the grave for three days, proved that everything he promised indeed would come to pass. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the very essence of our creed, the foundation of our hope in eternal life and the world that is to come. It's worth remembering. It's worth talking about. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Last week we actually walked through the account itself from Matthew 27 and 28 we walked through Jesus's trial we walked through his crucifixion we walked through the account of his resurrection we we read uh, of Jesus being alive of going into Galilee we read of the 500 coming together in Galilee and listening to their Lord we read his great commission that we would go and make disciples excuse me of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever Christ has commanded us with that promise before he ascended. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And so we, uh, we read of that account this week. We're going to talk about why it was so necessary We're going to talk about why as we read that historical account of Jesus's life, of Jesus's trial, of Jesus's crucifixion, of his burial, and of the empty tomb, of the eyewitnesses to that empty tomb. Why was it so necessary? And as I told you in that testimony beforehand, I'm going to take you through uh, beginning in Genesis. And in Genesis chapter two, in verse four, We read this, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth in the heavens, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth, and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put man, the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good of, of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads the name of the first is pison that is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where I- there is gold and the gold of that land is good there is bedelium and the onyx stone and the name of the second river is gayan the same it is it that compasseth the whole land of ethiopia and the name of the third river is hidekel that is it which goeth toward the east of assyria and the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept Ashamed. So we find in Genesis 2 a summary of God's creative work as it pertains directly to the crown of God's creation, mankind. In chapter 1, we see this the six days of creation, the seventh day, God rests. We see the order in which those things were made. But in chapter 2, all of it is pointed toward mankind and God's creation of man. God creates a man whose name is Adam, puts him in the garden, called Eden. This garden has among its trees two trees of particular distinction and whose descriptions are fairly self-explanatory. One was called the tree of life, of which if a man ate, he would not die. The other was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of which if a man ate, he would know good and evil. He would have within him thus an innate understanding of divine morality. He would lose His innocence, if we may call it that. Now why would this matter? Why would it matter that man was born outside of the knowledge of good and evil? Why would it matter that that mankind was born outside of the divine knowledge of accountability? I mean, of of the the divine knowledge uh, of of morality. And and that is because with knowledge comes accountability. With that knowledge comes accountability. Accountability. Romans chapter 1 tells us that all men are worthy of judgment because of their sinfulness and are indeed without excuse in judgment because the heavens declare both the, the, the existence of God and his eternal power and Godhead. So that, Romans 1 says, man is without excuse because man has an understanding given to him by his surroundings, given to him by his his innate understanding of divine morality written on our hearts, because of that, we are without excuse. Because every man's sin is manifest to him by nature itself. We have innately within us the knowledge of good and evil from the day that Adam and Eve partook of this fruit. And it is that knowledge that brings with it accountability. And it is that accountability, of course, that brings with it judgment. Now I'm getting my head ahead of myself a little bit here. We haven't gotten to that part in the text yet, so let's refocus. God wanted mankind to love Him in their innocence. God had created mankind in His image, not saying that we looked like God in the flesh, but rather that we were made as God is, a three-part being. God is three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Not three parts to one person, but three individual persons. And so God has made us body, soul, and spirit. God has made us in his image after his likeness. We are special. We are not just like the other animals which God created. We are made in the image of God. And this gives us a special place in God's created order. And he wanted his special creation, the creation that was made in his image, to love him In their innocence, to be willing to trust what they did not know and did not have. They did not know and did not have because God did not want them to know it or did not want them to have it because that was what was best for them and that they would be content in knowing that God was doing what was best for them. To this end they lived in fellowship with God because they lived in submission to God. They submitted themselves to God and they were in fellowship with him. They lived in a divinely imposed ignorance of morality, content to simply obey the one who provided all things for them. They lived free from a knowledge of death and of suffering and of loss. And God told them that they must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now notice that that he doesn't tell them all of what it would mean to them that they would if they did eat of that tree. He didn't tell them all of the elements uh, of what it would mean that they would understand divine morality. He simply tells them that if they eat of that tree of which God has said do not eat of it, they would surely die. He doesn't tell them the reason why they cannot eat of it. On that score, God simply expects them to love and to trust him. He only tells them the consequence that would take place if they eat of that fruit that they would die. So in this we find a trial of Adam and Eve's love for God. See, God has always wanted mankind to love him. God has always wanted mankind to exercise love toward him. But love must always come with a choice. Where there is no choice, there is no love. The very essence of love is choice. We define love at Legacy Baptist Church as an unconditional choice to do what is best for the object of your love, to do what is best for another, regardless of self-interest and regardless of circumstance. Where there is no love or choice, there is no love. I can force my children to follow me, I can force them to obey me, I can force them to do any number of things, but I cannot force them to love me because love must be a choice. Take away choice, take away that free will, and all you have left are puppets on a string. playthings in a divine playground where we're simply pieces to be moved at the will and the whims of the puppet maker. But that's not God. That's not us. God wanted us to love Him. And if God wants us to love Him, then He has to put something into our path that will allow us to choose Him or not to choose Him. Why was the tree there to begin with? Why would God even put the tree there if the consequence of partaking of that tree would be death? Why wouldn't He just remove it? Because God wanted us to love Him. And love that is not tested. Love that does not come to a moment of decision is not love. Next week, we're going to talk about this when Sam and Corey unite in marriage. We're going to talk about the reality that what marriage is, is not a bunch of feelings that have finally crested to the point where you just have to bind yourself to someone else. Love is not directly speaking an emotional sway. Love is going to be manifest when Sam says, I do, and Corey says, I do. When they are choosing to bind themselves one to another, when they are choosing to unite themselves. It is that choice that validates that love. Because love is a choice. The whole biblical record makes it abundantly clear that God has always desired His creation, the crown of His creation, those that He has given reason and capacity to come to Him in love. And love without choice is not love. It's manipulation. It's coercion. And this is why that tree had to exist. God is not a sadist. He needed to prove them. And what man will prove is that he loved something else more than God. Namely, he loved himself. Beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, "Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree to be desired to make one wise, She took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her. And he did eat, and the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. So the serpent who in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, the Bible tells us is the devil, or Satan, speaks to the woman and causes her to begin to fundamentally doubt God's good intentions toward her and toward her husband. He put into her a kernel of doubt as to whether or not what God was asking of them was actually what was best for them he asks her, has God truly said that you should not eat of every tree of the garden? In doing so, he's pla- placing a worst case scenario. Did God, is God really holding something back from you? Did he really say not to eat of all the trees of the garden? And, and, and Eve gets it right here, right at the beginning. She starts out well. She actually corrects the serpent. She says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. It's not that we can't have of all the trees of the garden. It's that we can have of all the trees but one. There's only one, there's a lot of trees here and only one of them is being withheld from me. And God has said not to, Touch that one, not to eat of that one, because that one would not be good for us. That the day that we eat thereof, we would surely die. God's looking out for us. God has our best interest. He's given us everything we need in all these other trees. Well, Satan then continues to contradict this claim. He is a master liar. He's the father of lies. He is the great deceiver. He is the adversary of God's people, and he insists that God is not keeping the tree from them because that He has their best interests in mind. He insists that it's not because they would surely die, but rather he says God is holding you back from partaking of this tree because God knows that the day you eat thereof you'll become as a God knowing good and evil then you will become a rival you will be able to rival God and God is afraid of you God is holding you back from your fullest potential God is keeping you from maximum glory God is keeping you from maximum potential God is afraid of you in your power God doesn't want competition now We don't know how much of this was actually tremendously tempting to Eve, but we do know that these replies disarmed her. It caused her to fundamentally question what she had thought or understood about God and His goodness. Made Adam and Eve, who once willingly believed they had all that they needed, start to wonder if there was something they were missing. And Satan had done a good job of convincing Eve and deceiving her into believing that she was missing something. So she looks at the fruit, and the Bible says that as she looked at this fruit, the world, the philosophy of the world encroached. John wrote in 1 John 2, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, The pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. We see all three of those elements of the world flood into Eve's consciousness at this moment. The Bible says that she saw the fruit and that it was good for food, the lust of the flesh, that it would satisfy her flesh. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, that it looked good. And she recognized that it was a fruit that, was, that would make her wise, the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, they flood into her, so she takes of the fruit of the tree and she eats it. And then the Bible says she gave to her husband Adam and he ate it. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, makes it very clear that Eve was deceived into partaking of that fruit, that she had been tricked, that she did not understand. The very fact that, that we see this, this distinction made in 1 Timothy 2.14 lends us to the understanding, combined with passages in Romans 5, that Adam was not deceived into partaking of the fruit. It's very possible. We don't know all of Adam's motives, what was going through his mind with this moment. We don't even know how much of what the serpent said to Eve he heard. Was Adam with her at the moment? Did he hear all of this while Eve was interacting with the serpent? Or did he come up after the fact? We don't know all of the, the ins and outs of this. It's very possible that there were some headship issues at play here, that Adam yielded what he knew to be right in deference to his wife, whether because he knew now that she must die, and so he willingly joined her out of, out of love and loyalty to her, or, or whether because uh, his deference or love for her compelled him to place her request above his own better judgment. We, we can't fully know all of what was going on with Adam here. It's also very possible that while Eve was deceived by the serpent, as I said, Adam was there listening and he was not deceived at all. But what we know, what we do know is this. It seems as though Adam saw in in, in Satan's interpretation of events an opportunity that was already in his heart to be his own boss, to come apart from God's authority to have the ability at his disposal to challenge God's authority and to be like God himself. So Adam took it, and we certainly know this. It was not given to Eve to be the head of the human race, that Adam is the head of the human race. Eve was created to be Adam's helpmeet. Adam was the head of humanity. Humanity's future rose and fell on his decision, not Eve's. It it was not when Eve partook of the fruit that, that humanity fell to sin. It was when Adam partook of the fruit that humanity fell to sin. It was Adam's decision. It was Adam's failure. It was Adam who brought the human race into this place of sinfulness. Adam chose rebellion. He rebelled against his creator, and at that moment, the human race died. We'll come back to this in a moment, but let's finish our summary. Adam partakes of the fruit of the tree and they immediately uh, have this coveted knowledge of good and of evil. And the first thing they understand outside of their innocence is that they were naked and they sought to cover their shame by sowing leaves together. Then they hear the voice of God walking to fellowship with them in the garden as we understand God would regularly do, he would walk with them and he would talk with them. And the Bible says that they hid themselves. For the first time, God's creation hid themselves from God's presence. For the first time, they, God's creation felt the guilt and the shame of sin that drove them out of fellowship with their creator. They experienced the separation from God that their rebellion had instilled in them. And it's here that we talk more about the concept of death. Death is by definition a separation. Physical death is the separation of the material part of us from the immaterial part of us, the material part from the spiritual part. Spiritual death is the separation of our spirit from the spirit of life which is in God. The moment Adam partook of the fruit of that tree, rebelling against God and receiving the knowledge of divine morality, two things were certain. First, Adam and Eve were separated from the life of God by virtue of their sin. They died spiritually so that when God came, to walk with them in the cool of the day, they hid themselves because there was something between them and God. They had been separated from the life of God. Second, we understand that Adam and Eve would eventually return unto the dust from which Adam was formed. They would die physically. And if upon their physical death, they were still spiritually dead, if upon the the, the physical separation of the material from the spiritual, they were also spiritually separated from the life of God by virtue of their sin, then their spirits, which were immortal, are immortal, must remain in that state of separation for eternity. This would be just because they had rebelled against God. Now, as the text continues, we see just how serious of a problem this is. I'm not going to read it. In the garden, we had talked about that tree of life. The concept of the tree of life is found in the Bible in two contexts. In Genesis and in Revelation, the tree of life speaks of a fruit-bearing tree which, upon eating thereof, grants the eater immortality, eternal life. In Proverbs, we see the phrase used four times within a, a second context, and that context is speaking metaphorically of actions and circumstances which bless those who interact with them. So we have the concept, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, right? The idea that in righteousness there is life. It is the way to the tree of life. After this incident of Adam and Eve eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Bible says God cast them out of a garden and particularly he put an angelic guard upon the way of the tree of life. That because what God did not want, above all things, is that humanity, having partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, would then go and partake of the tree of life, gain immortality in their sin, and so, like the disobedient angels, be damned to eternal punishment and separation from God without redemption, because they are immortal and immortal in their sin." To that end, we find the true essence of God's warning here is that if they partake of the fruit, they would do so in rebellion to God and would be separated from the life of God, from fellowship with God, and their physical death then becomes to them two things. First, their physical death establishes in the mind of man the deepest realities of his hopeless condition because no man can cheat death. And then second, their physical death would establish in them The natural statute of limitations that says, if you don't get right with God, if you don't find the means by which to bring your spirit back into fellowship with the life that is in God, then you will die. You will be separated eternally from God. All throughout the New Testament, we see death spoken of in this spiritual sense as much as in the physical Paul discusses this very instance in Romans chapter 5, contrasting Adam's sin with our Savior's obedience. And we see a discussion of Adam's rebellion and death contrasted with Christ's obedience in securing for us grace and eternal life. And we must understand this discussion of the gospel to center around spiritual separation as much, m- far more in fact, than just the physical separation of the material from the immaterial. So we read in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. We see the contrast here between death and life. By sin came death. So then sin reigns over all men because all have sinned. Even upon those who didn't sin with Adam, yet death still reigned from Adam to Moses, at which time, of course, the law, which was ordained unto life, was given. But as Paul speaks of the insufficiency of the law, In Romans 7. He says that the law, the commandment that was ordained to life, was found by him as it is by all men who would seek it unto death. Because no man can keep it. Because no man can live up to it. So whether it be from Adam to Moses where death reigned through sin, or from Moses to Christ where death reigned through sin, death has always reigned. Separation from God has always reigned. Physical death has always been the end of man's life. The natural statute of limitations that brings to us the end of our physical existence on this earth. And as no one could keep the law, no soul could be saved through the law. So we continue to read in verse 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many, and not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the, ju- for the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. By the offense of one, the text says, many be dead. But in contrast, by the gift of God, by one man, that's Jesus Christ, grace has abounded unto many by one judgment passes upon all men for that all have sinned Adam sinned he made a choice now every man is born into that sin nature and it is confirmed by our sinful choices so that when the scriptures tell us there is none righteous no not one so that the scriptures tell us for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God we all know that we know that that we have all fallen short of God's glory but by the obedience of one, by the, to the glory of God, by one, justification has been purchased for all men, that those who come to him will not be cast out, but will inherit what verse 18 calls justification unto life. Justification is a legal term. It does not speak of innocence. Innocence was lost in the garden. Innocence has never been found again but it does speak of not being not guilty being declared righteous it speaks not of the one who can stand before the judge innocent but it speaks of the one who can stand before the judge and be declared not guilty because his price has already been paid and all of this brings us to the point why today is resurrection Sunday Today is the day we celebrate Jesus rising from the dead. On Friday, many regard as the day that Jesus would go into the tomb, would be crucified on the cross. And the question becomes, why? Why did a perfect, sinless man have to die? Why did God have to send his Son, God in flesh, to come and to live that perfect life only to suffer the cruel agony and the shame and and the, the reproach of death? Why does it matter so much that three days later Jesus rose from the dead? Why does it matter so much that the tomb is empty? Why does it matter so much that you could go and find the bones of every religious leader? You can go and find the bones of the Buddha. You can go and find the bones of Muhammad. You can go to find the bones of the Dalai Lama. You can go to find the bones of every religious leader, but you go to the tomb where Jesus Christ was, and he's not there. And you'll never find his bones, because there are no bones, because he's alive, because he rose from the dead. Why is it so important? Why did it have to happen? It had to happen because we're broken. It had to happen because of this sin that has separated us so deeply from God. Because mankind is born in Adam, separated from God through sin, brought into a world of which only one thing is absolutely certain. There's only one thing absolutely certain in this world, and that is that we will die. And without a payment for the sin of mankind, without a solution to the sin problem, we die physically as we are born, dead in our trespasses and sins, our spirits separated from the life of God. And if we do that, we're separated for eternity. And that separation is in a place of conscious torment called the lake of fire, the scriptures tell us. A just punishment for our sin. But, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. All that was lost in Adam on the day of mankind's great rebellion against our Creator All that was lost on the day that Adam partook of that fruit, for whatever reasons he chose to do it, was regained on the day that Jesus rose from the dead. The way to the tree of life, which was guarded by the cherubims of God, was opened by the power of Christ's life. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Where death reigns supreme, now life eternal has overcome through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why is the resurrection so important? Why is it so essential? Because without it, sin is paid for, but death still takes us to our graves where we remain. But if Christ is risen from the dead, if He will bring all who believe with Him into that resurrection, then all that was lost in Adam is restored through those, unto those who believe on the name of Jesus Christ. By Christ's death, our sin is paid. By Christ's life, we can be saved. So back in Romans 5. Let's go back a few verses. I read to you verses 12 through 21. We read this in verses 6 through 11. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For yet scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we, al- we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Reconciled to God by Christ's death, but then being reconciled, we are saved from the realities of death through Christ's life. Christ's death is your freedom from sin. Christ's life is the power to walk in newness of life. Christ's death is our deliverance. Christ's life is our hope and our joy in God through Him, by whom we have now received atonement. So Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 19 and 20, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead, and become the firstfruits of them that slept. As Christ has indeed risen from the dead, we pass beyond the hopelessness of death, beyond the hopelessness of sin, and root ourselves in a new reality. That one day we shall shed our mortal bodies, with all of its sin, and with all of its pain, and with all of its sorrow, all of those things that accompany this life in the flesh, and will put on incorruption. So Paul would continue in verses 54 through 57 of First Corinthians 15. So when this corruptible, that's our bodies, shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this day is about. That's what this day is about. It's about the victory that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ. The need for the resurrection, simply put, is this. Mankind has rebelled. We're sinners. The wages of sin is death. We've been separated from God because of our sin. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are saved, Romans 5 verse 10 says, by his life. Because Jesus lives, so too can we. But you know what? Because Jesus lives does not mean everyone will live. John chapter one tells us, but as many as receive him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Not everyone is going to heaven because Jesus paid the price. Did Jesus pay the price for all men? He did. First John two, two, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also the sins of the entire world. But, He that believeth is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, 1 John 3, verse 18. The Bible tells us that it is not enough just for us to know what Jesus has done for us. The Bible tells us that we must accept what Jesus has done for us. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 describes it this way as repentance from dead works and faith toward God. A... Setting aside a turning from anything and everything that we might trust in to earn ourselves favor with God, to make ourselves right with God. Anything that we might might elevate ourselves and say, I must be okay with God because I'm a good person. I must be okay with God because I go to church or because I give money or because I've been baptized or whatever it might be. The Bible says those things cannot save. But only as we put our full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, that Jesus has already done what we cannot do. We can't save ourselves. We can't earn it. We'll never be worthy of it. And if we try, we will end up separated from God for eternity. But if we call upon the Lord, who is not a respecter of persons, we cry out unto him for salvation. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. The Bible tells us, all that come to him, he will in no wise cast out. If you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior today, let's let today be the day. What better day than Resurrection morning? What better day than the day that we commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ? But most of us here are believers. And for we who are in Christ today, this season is one of solemn remembrance, but also of great joy. Our songs this morning, were not songs of sorrow, they were songs of joy. Christ the Lord is risen today, alleluia, praise ye the Lord. Christ arose, it starts a little somber, until we get to the resurrection. Up from the grave He arose, began with crown Him with many crowns, and of course that final song, why is it there today? Because that is the point. Praise Him, praise Him, ever in joyful song. Now next week, we're going to talk a little bit more to believers about the implications of the resurrection. We're going to talk about what it means to you today, believer. We know what it meant to you at the moment that you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. It meant freedom from sin. It meant release from guilt. It meant a home in heaven. It meant the, 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 the chains being broken from sin off of your life. But there's more to it than that. We don't just live in remembrance of the resurrection. We as believers live daily in the power of the resurrection. We're going to talk about that next week. But for today, for this day, we rejoice. We rejoice that we have been saved from the sting of death, from the victory of the grave, from the hopelessness of an eternity separated from the life which is in God the moment that we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we were brought back into union with God. Have you done that today? Are you living in light of that today? Are you rejoicing in that today? Today is a day of rejoicing. For indeed, he is risen, just as he said. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota.